All right. All right, let's get started. And uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we come to you now and we just thank you for, uh, for this time as we uh, continue to look at Genesis 24, as we talk about love and marriage and the church and raising children. I pray for the work of the Spirit to, to change us, to, to train, change us because I, I know personally just how so much of my view of all the things that I've just mentioned are very, there's, there's cultural impacts uh, day after day that just bombard me. And so, God, I, I pray that tonight that we would rightly uh, run our view of these things and our handling of these things in the order and the structure uh, through the filter of the Word. And I pray that we would let your breathed-out Word uh, inform us appropriately. God, I pray that as a result of the things we're looking at, as they're pretty weighty matters, I pray that you would keep our minds focused, and I pray that as a result of the things we look at and consider, uh, I pray that... Uh, the marriages would be changed. I pray that uh, parenting would be strengthened. Uh, I pray that the church would be rightly ordered. And, uh, and I pray that, uh, that you'd be glorified as, as a very lost community sees people submitting to your will and your design and thereby putting your glory on display. Uh, God, I, I, I thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for the work of the Spirit, because without it, we all leave here completely unchanged, uh, having maybe just a little more information in our pocket. And I, I pray for more than that tonight. Uh, I pray that you would bless our time, uh, guard my words. If I say anything that's stupid, I pray it would fall on deaf ears. And I pray that, again, you would find us submitting to your design and your word. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn to Genesis 24, week 8. In the last eight weeks, we've been in Genesis 24, and we have, it's 67 verses, and it's a really long chapter, and we spent a lot of time in it, and if this is your first time with us, you need to know the background that in Genesis 24, in chapter 12, we see God make a promise to Abraham that he's going to make his name great, and the reason he's making Abraham's name great is so that when people look at Abraham, they'll know how great Abraham's God is more than they'll know how great Abraham is. And so what we see in Genesis 24 is that one of the means that God uses to make Abraham's name great is this very weird, uncultural picture of an arranged marriage. We see gifts being given, uh, all kinds of things, and, and it's completely uncultural to us. But we have uh, we've seen um, played out in this that, that God's will has been carried out in a number of ways. We see Abraham send out the head servant of the house, Eleazar, and he says, go uh, to my homeland and to the house of, of my relatives and find a wife for my son Isaac. Isaac's about 40 at this point. Isaac's mom died about three years previous, and apparently he's still mourning over that. But he's about 40 years old. He's 40. He's single. Um, and uh, we see here that there's still great hope as God's bringing him his bride. And so Eleazar, this very quiet and diligent servant, goes out and he goes to uh, the place that Abraham told him to go. And as he comes to this well, there's women drawing water from the well. And Eleazar uh, prays and he says, God, I pray that you would show, he prays for a sign, but it's not just a random sign like let her be wearing a green dress. 
but he prays for a sign that in the, in the uh, answering of the prayer that something about her character is in fact revealed. It's not just a random, God, give me a sign. Let me know she's the one by, you know, she trips and drops her water jar or something dumb like that and inconsequential. But he prays for a sign that points to her character. And he says, let, let her be the one who, when I ask her for a drink, let her give me a drink, but let her also offer water uh, to the camels. The camels, there were 10 of them. They're carrying water in a jar, and there's 10 camels, and they've been on this very, very long journey. I did some research and found out that a camel can drink 25 gallons of water in an hour. And this one girl, this one petite, pretty girl, evidently, is carrying these jars of water to feed 10 camels. That's 250 gallons of water in an hour. I mean, that's some serious work, and it shows in her character that she's diligent, that she's servant-hearted, and that she looks out for the interests of others and not only the interests of herself. And so we, we see something about that, but it's cool because she comes up as, as Eleazar is praying. It says, before he finished praying, Rebecca showed up. And it reminded us that God knows our deepest needs before we voice them. He's not even, he hasn't said amen, and he opens his eyes, and it turns out that God was already doing what God was planning to do the whole time, and he knew Eleazar and Abraham and Isaac's deepest needs before they were even finished voicing them by way of a prayer. And so there's an exchange of, of different words, and she goes home, tells her parents, hey, this is what happened, and then um, he meets the rest of the family, and to keep it as short as we can, because this is our eighth week in Genesis 24, if you want to know more, there's eight weeks of recordings online, uh, what happens is uh, eventually she comes home with them. And the, the part of the story here at the end is, is that she's coming home, and we see Isaac is out in a field, and, and he is uh, meditating. And as he's out in this field, he sees a silhouette of camels. And the camels mean that his, his wife is here. And it's, he, never has a man been so excited by a silhouette of camels in his life. And here at the end, it says, Now Isaac returned, in verse 62, from Bir Lahai Leroy, and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field and toward, evening, uh, toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Eleazar, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Things seem a little abrupt at the end of the chapter, and that's caused us to take a closer look at, at love and marriage and how does this work. Isaac has never had correspondence with Rebecca. He's never met her. They haven't sent letters to each other. Uh, they weren't members of, you know, eHarmony.com or whatever where they could figure out a little more about each other before they met. There was no correspondence. It's, hi, how you doing? Consummate the marriage. True love. I mean, it seems pretty abrupt, but I believe that the love is true. The, the original language indicators say that it's not. When it says he loved her, that wasn't just a, a momentary sensation. It was a lasting thing, something that happens and it, and it lasts, and there's true love there. And the thing that we've considered in the previous weeks is that that love is there because God brought them together. If there's ever a man who thinks that he can do a better job of choosing his wife than God could do, if there's ever a person who thinks that they could do a better job of finding their spouse than God could do a better job of bringing them together, then they're just wrong. You're deceived. 
And here we see the Lord, as he did in the garden where he brings Eve to Adam, he does the same thing here by way of Eleazar. He brings Rebekah to Isaac, and she's even got a veil on. I mean, it's this, it's this marriage, beautiful love picture that we see here. And they're on the field. It's towards sunset. It's a pretty picture. But the thing that is amazing here is that there's real love so quickly. And the thing we've considered is that Isaac loves her because he realizes God brought her to me. God brought us together. What God has brought together, there's no reason for it to ever be torn apart by man or any other circumstance. And so he loves her. And what we have talked about in the previous weeks is the will to love. The very uncultural statement that we made is that if you will to love someone, you can. That's extremely uncultural. Most of you would not want your spouse going to your friend, to their friends and saying, I got to work really hard to love my spouse. It's hard work. And this week especially, I'm having to work really hard. As the spouse on the other side of it, you'd be like, wait, that's not right. But it's true. The will to love goes far beyond the stirring of emotions. It must. And in fact, the thing we talked about in the previous weeks is that It's not, you're a robot, love your spouse, that's it, that's all there is to it. There's no passion, there's no emotion, you just love them. It's an act of the will, get over yourself. That's not what I'm saying. Song of Solomon has a whole book of racy uh, stuff you can read, and it doesn't say anything about making babies. It's all about pleasure. There's a lot of passion, a lot of emotion there. But I would say that the passions and the emotions are completely limited by the will to love. And if the will to love is high, those passions and those emotions are going to be higher. But you're never going to have a relationship where the passions and emotions are up here and the will to love is down here and you're having a right representation of what love really is. It may just be lust. It may just be just physical something or other. But it's not true love. And so we've talked about the will to love and that there must be a will to love. In a relationship, the will to love is as much an issue as is the emotions and the stirring uh, that takes place. Like the first time you see the one you're going to marry, there's this stirring in your heart, a pitter-patter. And, and true love goes beyond that because that pitter-patter may not be there a year into it or 20 years into it or 40 years into it or whatever. And so we've been looking at the will to love. But this part at the end of Genesis 24 has caused us to springboard into a whole arena of things. And what I mean is this, and I want to make this clear because at Crosspoint we have expository preaching and teaching. We go through a verse at a time, and sometimes as we study through the Word, we come across a piece of Scripture, sometimes a section, a section, sometimes just a word, and it causes us to springboard into a whole arena of thought that may, seem, may not seem obvious at the first glance at the original piece of the springboard scripture. So the first time you look at, then Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. That doesn't say, oh, well, let's talk about arranged marriages and the will to love and dowry and bride price and polygamy and all these things that we've talked about in the previous weeks, but it is springboarded us in. And I want y'all to be aware, that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, we're, we're in the place we are from Genesis 24, but it's caused us to take a look at it. And you've seen, it's happened with Ben sometimes on a Sunday morning, he'll be going through and there's just this word, man, let's spend some time in this and it'll cause us to look at something. And what we're doing is we're really gaining a more robust picture of what was there originally. When it says he loved her, we could just read on and go to chapter 25. But I want to understand that love because I want to rightly reflect what God had planned here. And I want to do everything I can to submit to that same kind of thing in my own marriage. And we should be doing that corporately so that we're a church that's putting God's glory on display. Now, 
This is what we've done in the last two verses of 24. It says, Then the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife. He loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So what are the things that we have springboarded to from this verse? Just in the last eight weeks, this is week eight, so the last seven weeks, what are some of the things we've talked about? Some of the big points that have come out, some of the big kind of um, things that we should remember from this, from the springboard. Seven weeks. Not everybody at once. Details. Details. What about the details? What do we do with them? Share them. Why? So others would have a chance to worship God for the same reason you're worshiping Him. And what do we have to have to share details? Details. How do we get those details? By paying attention to the details. And what do we do as we are personally paying attention to the details? What do we do as we see God revealing things? Yeah, we worship him. So we pay attention to the details. We worship God in the midst of the details, and we share them with other people so that they can worship God in a like manner. What are some of the other weird controversial things we've talked about uh, in the springboard from Genesis 24? Say that again. Arrange marriages. Dowry, bride price, I already said some of those. What are the things we learned from that? What should marriage be all about? God? The family? The family? Yeah. It's only until the last few hundred years that we realize marriage is... It's funny, the single guys keep answering. Married people need to step it up. Uh, uh, it's funny that in the last, you know, marriage has always been all about the family, but in the last, you know, hundred, few hundred years... Um, we've seen it be more about the individual. And the big point that we've come to is that as the church has become less about the family, this is a big point, as the church has become less about the family and more about the individual, marriage has followed suit. And a lot of times, rather than used to seeing young people go to a parent and saying, what do you think about this person that I think I love? What do you think about them? Uh, You don't see that. And you see even less of, can you help me find the right person? You don't see that hardly at all. Normally what you see is this is the right person. If you don't like them, I'm going to marry them, and you can make a decision if you want to be a part of our lives or not because I love them and I don't care what you think, and it's about me as an individual, not us as a family. That's normally what you see, right? So here we we have springboarded into this area, and we've talked about these things, but we're talking about marriage, love. We've talked about parenting. We've talked about the church and how marriage and parenting and the church and love are not separate spheres of life. They have everything to do with each other. The lingo that's used for the way that the church is to function appropriately is family lingo. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this family lingo. And so family, church, love, parenting are not separate spheres of life where I do my parenting over here and I have my marriage over here and then we go to church on Sunday. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. The dots are all connected because of the cross and because of Christ. For the next eight weeks, I've been praying, you know, when you springboard into something like this, we're talking about marriage and love and parenting. I could stay here until I die. And we could just, in a month or two, we could just repeat what we said a month or two, and we'd all be like, oh man, that's crazy. Because scripture says we all need to be stirred up by way of reminder. We're thick-skulled, we forget, and we need to stir one another up. That's part of the reason that community is so very important, because there's lots of people saying, you're thick-skulled and you forget, don't forget, remember this. We need that, especially in the times where it's real obvious that we've forgotten that. But I've been praying and I'm saying, you know, God, 
I could spend my whole life talking about marriage and parenting and children. I mean, I've only been married, what, six years, something like that, around about, and, uh, and uh, almost six. And, you know, you know, after however many years, I'll have learned more and we can start over. And so I was praying and looking at this, and it's, it's, uh, there's so much here. We went to a conference this last week. It was a marriage conference. And I'm sitting there in the conference going, oh, I've been teaching this for like six weeks, and I haven't even scratched the surface. That's like 18,000 other directions that I could go on Wednesday nights. It's so, that's so well-informed. The guy teaching did a phenomenal job. I got, uh, I'm leading worship at a conference in Lubbock next week. And I didn't know what the topic was. I thought it was something totally different. I called the pastor and said, hey, man, what's the topic of the conference? He's like, marriage in the church. I'm like, it's all around. We can't get away from this. What is the deal? And so here's what we're doing for the next eight weeks. I'm going to take tonight, next week, and the next week to try and put some kind of bow on this to make it pretty and done. Genesis 24, marriage, family, church, parenting, love. And then for the next five weeks through the month of May, um, that conference that we went to this last week, we got the DVD and it has 10 25-minute sessions. So in five Wednesdays, we can do two 25-minute sessions totaling 50 minutes of that conference. It was phenomenal. It was very good. There's some conferences you go to where they don't open their Bibles and it's lame. There's other conferences you go to where they feast on the Word and they open the Bible and say, go here, let's look at what God says and they can be phenomenal. This conference was phenomenal, and so we're going to make it the opportunity, present the opportunity to this church body that on Wednesdays, starting the 29th of April, going through the month of May, we're going to show that conference in here on the screen, and then each week I'll, I'll be making some talkback questions, kind of a shepherd's guide to send home with you as y'all work through this. So we're going to spend three more weeks talking about it, us, and then we're going to have five weeks on kind of a, a uh, digital conference thing. Why? Why is this so important? Why in the world are we spending this much time on two verses when we could just go to chapter 25? Why? Why are we spending so much time understanding marriage, love, parenting, the church? I want to make this clear because it's important. The first reason has to do with order and design. The first reason that we're spending so much time on this, the reason that I've studied probably five or 600 pages of text and put in hundreds of hours on this is because it's important. Why is it important? Part of the reason it's important is because of order and design. Every culture on the whole planet that ever existed has some kind of order and design. Think about that. Every single culture that ever existed has some kind of order and design. Even the most screwed up cultures, even the weird tribal cultures, even the most disorganized, immoral, and perverted cultures had design and order to them. And in fact, oftentimes a lack of organization, an increase in immorality and perversity, sometimes make up the order of that culture. What kind of culture is that? It's a perverse culture. But there's still order there. Even in the most crazy pandemonium, there's still order in every culture that ever existed. Likewise, because of sin, you will never move to a new neighborhood and be able to say, well, generally, everyone here seems to be pretty good. I'm surrounded by neighbors who are all non-sinners. You can't say that. Why? Because of sin. You are moving to a neighborhood, no matter where you live, where you are surrounded by and a part of a fallen people. And redemption only exists in Christ. Hear this. The reason we're spending so much time on this is the order and design of things. 
You never move to a culture where everyone's good and no one's, and everyone's non-sinners. We're a fallen people and redemption exists only in Christ. And so there's an order that you're either going to submit to or there's an order that you're just going to adopt in the culture you live in. And so the order and design of things, we will either be a reflection of culture back to God or of God back to the culture. And this is a key point. If God has order and structure, we have to live by it. We're, we're redeemed people. We're called Christians because of what happened at the cross. So here, if he has order and structure, we have to live by it. So the question is, does God have order and structure for love and marriage and parenting? If he does, I'm not even saying yes yet, but if he does, we have no choice but to live by it. For there's no other way for us to put his glory on display by shelving his design and trying our own thing. We saw it in Genesis 1 or 3. We saw it in every chapter leading up, essentially, and we're seeing it here. There's no way for you to put God's glory on design by shelving his, God's glory on display by shelving his design and doing your own thing. It doesn't work that way. It's a recurring theme here in Genesis. If we try our own thing, we put our own glory on display. If we try the culture's thing, whose glory do we put on display? The culture. But if we, if we submit and live according to God's design, we put his glory on display. So we do our thing, we put our glory on display. We do the culture thing, we put culture's glory on display. Or we do God's thing and his design, and we submit to that, and we put his glory on display. So why is it important that we spend so much time on this? Because you live in a fallen culture, and redemption only exists in Christ. And if there is a design and an order of the way things are supposed to be in the life of a Christian as far as marriage and love and raising children and the church is concerned, we have to find what that order and that structure is, then we have to submit to it wholeheartedly. Or there's no other way that we're going to put God's glory on display for this lost community that we live in the midst of every day. So you get to do that with your marriage every day and with the way that we interact as a church every day. And in your friendships every day and every other relationship here. So our closer look here, well, first, in revealing his order, God reveals to us his will. This is really important. We're going to talk about the order of things, and we're going to have a testimony here in just a minute. But in revealing God's order, he reveals his will. Let's say I'm building something, and I haven't told you what my will is that I want to build. But you can see the order of it and figure out what the will is. If I say, I'm building something, I'm not going to reveal to you what my will is that I'm building, but I'm going to build something. And here's what I want you to do. No sharp corners. Eight by eight cells. I want you to put steel bars on the front of every cell. I want every door to lock shut for every cell. What am I building? A jail or really bad Childcare facility, um, a jail, and so it's. I haven't told you what my will is to build, but in the design of it, you can see. Oh, his, he's, he's going to build a jail. This is a jail, obviously. So here, what we see is that when God reveals the order and the structure by which He wants us to live, it's not as it's not as rigid as it is Old Testament. He doesn't like. For instance, we're building a building out here. We don't have a book that we go to. God says it has to be 60 by 100. He says the walls have to be 14 feet tall. He says that there has to be three toilets in every bathroom, and there has to be one of the bigger stalls. And you get, no, no, no. We, we don't, it's not that kind of order that we're talking about. 
We have the order of the Old Testament that we see where there's ceremonial washings and all these things to be a tutor to help us understand what we have in Christ. But in Christ, there's still order and there's still structure. So we need to pay attention to it. We need to pay attention to what's going on here as far as the way that God is ordering things. So our closer look at these things brings us to the realization God does have a design and an order for us to submit to. The first one I want to share is is turn to 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy 5. When, when Paul writes these letters, now first of all, don't you see it as Paul? 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So yes, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. He's going to write a letter to Titus as well that we're going to look at. But don't look at it as just Paul's design or Paul's model or Paul's order and structure. Look at it as breathed out by God. God who breathed the same breath into Adam as he laid there as a pile of dust. God whose borrowed breath you carry is the same God who breathed out these words. So the order and the structure is God's. And in 1 Timothy 5, It's cool because it says in verse 1, he's writing to Timothy, who's a young elder in the church, and he's putting things into order. And they've talked about qualifications for overseers, qualifications for deacons. They've talked about teaching. They've talked about servants. They've talked about praying for all people. They've talked about warnings against false teachers, order and structure for the church. And here in chapter 5, he says, young elder Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. That's order. That's structure. That means if I go to an older man in the church and I say, hey, you big dumb idiot, shut your mouth, quit doing what you're doing, go over there and just do what I say, this young man is out of line in that circumstance because according to the order and the structure that God puts together, do not rebuke an older man but encourage him as you would a father. And if you would talk to your father in that way, there is other scripture that talks to that as well. You're not honoring your father if you talk to him that way. Treat younger men like brothers, not necessarily your children, but like brothers. If there's a younger man that I'm walking with, I don't treat him the same way I would my two-year-old daughter. Would you shut up? I don't say shut up to my daughter. Wow, I just revealed something about myself. I've never said that to my daughter, I I promise. Um, But if, you know, I I will say things to her in the same, I wouldn't say them the same way that I would to Patrick, who I'm walking with. Patrick and I are walking together, we meet every week. I wouldn't talk to him. There's, there's times where I'm like, no, baby, you just can't do that. We're not going to, you don't get to give your opinion on this. We're gonna, I'll talk to her in a different way than I would Patrick. Why? Because there's an order here. Treat younger men like brothers. Older women like mothers. Younger women like sisters and all purity. There's order there and it's God's order. Turn over to uh, Titus. Just a couple pages to the right. Titus 2. In Titus 2, we see older women being called to train, train younger women to love who? Husbands and children. To train. Train younger women. We see the will here, the will to love. If you can be trained to do it, there's a will there. You're pushing yourself beyond your natural ability so that you might learn to do that, which is the will of God. Trained. But this isn't just random women, is it? we got to see this connection. It's not just random women. Who is it? Women of the what? Church. Yeah, it's not just random women. 
this is the women in the community of faith. It's the women of the church. The design in Titus 2.3 that says train younger women to love their husbands and children is a smaller part of the bigger design that's explained in Titus 1.5. Turn over to it or look over to it. Same page. Paul, God's breathed out word, is writing to Titus, and he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Order, structure. This is why I left you there, Titus, so that you would put what remained into order, because there's things that remain that have not been put into order, and I want you to put them into order. And one of the smaller things that we've talked about is that older women are to train younger women to love their husbands and their children. That's part of a, a smaller part of the order that exists within a church that's God-ordained as communicated here. Titus, I left you there so that you put these things into order because it's important. Don't just try and wing it. Don't do your own thing because if you do your own thing, you're going to put your own glory on display. If you do the culture's thing there in Crete, you're going to put Crete's, Crete's glory on display. So I need you to do God's thing. I need you to put that in order so that when y'all live it out, you're putting God's glory on display. Turn to Ephesians 5. Order exists within a structure. Here, the structure we're talking about is the church, and it's a divine structure. In Ephesians 5, we see uh, the husbands called to something pretty dang big. Husbands are commanded, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But this is not just random husbands. Who is it? Husbands of the church, Christians, believing husbands. The design in Ephesians 5 is a smaller part of the bigger design that's shared in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. Turn to the left. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Listen to the language that's being used here and see if there's any language that jumps out at you, as, of course, I will emphasize those words when I come across them so that they will jump out at you, but see if there's any language that jumps out at you that points to order or structure or, pl or a plan that may be divine by God. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Consider the words that are used there. The purpose of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth as a plan for the fullness of time. All these things point to the sobering truth that for those of us who are in Christ, we have been made new, and there is a resultant change in the order and the structure of how we live. The worst premarital counseling advice I ever got was, you'll figure it out as you go along. Thanks for that. We took a test, scored high on the test, higher than anyone he had had in his premarital counseling. It's like, man, we've never seen a score this high. Y'all are good to go. High five. You'll figure it out as you go along. That's horrible advice. Don't ever give that advice to a young person because, yeah, you'll figure it out, but you can figure it out the wrong way. So um, 
All of these things are sobering truth that for those who are new in Christ, this new life that exists in Christ by the hand of God, God says, for you, you don't get to just choose how you live. You live for me. You live according to my design and my structure because in doing so, you put on display my glory. And redemption is only in Christ. So we engage a culture that wants to do things the cultural way. Or if they're an independent person who's Christless, they'll do things their way. But we do things God's way. There's a structure and a design here. And the resultant change in the order of how we live. And it's not an order that we randomly figure out or come up with on our own or adopt from the local culture. And in fact, what we're finding is it's an order you submit to. Like, think about that. When you're thinking about the way you do things and the way you live and the way that you function as a family and a husband and a wife and as a parent, and someone says, how did you, how'd you get there? And you say, you should figure it out. You should say, we're submitting to God's design. Why do you do that? Because God told me to. Why do y'all function like that? Why is your home set up like that? Don't, if, if your answer is because that's how we figured it out or I read it in this book over here or, or whatever other independent cultural whatever reason, it's wrong. It must be that you submit to the Lord's design. In sharing his design, God reveals to us his will. So in faithfully following his design, we first show that God's trustworthy we put his glory on display. In putting his glory on display, we're renouncing our own design and we're renouncing culture's design. And we're showing them the same thing that was revealed to Adam and Eve when they tried to do their own thing or to the, tower, the people to Tower of Babel when they tried to do their own thing or the entire world minus the, him redeeming Noah and his family when they tried to do their own thing. And this is what it comes down to. Your wisdom, your wisdom is not greater than God's. Your wisdom is not greater than God's. Therefore, anytime you shelve God's design for your own thing, you're actually submitting to an inferior thing when you should be submitting to the best thing, which is God's design. It's far better for you to repent and turn from your own design. Sometimes that's what we have to repent from. Our own design may be sin. Repent, turn from it, submit to God's, and follow hard after God's. So in short, it is of utmost importance that we better understand love and marriage and parenting in the church because they're the ways that we daily inform ourselves and a fallen culture of our foolishness, and it's the way that we daily put God's glory on display, thereby fulfilling the very purpose for which we were created. You're created for God's glory. There's no way to put his glory on display if what you're putting on display is your own design or the culture's design. So why are we spending so much time on marriage, and why are we going to be in here the next eight weeks talking about this and the church and love? That's why, because it's that important. God's glory is at stake. We're called to do this in community. Given that this order that exists is an order that is lived out within a community of faith, I felt it necessary from y'all to, for y'all to hear from a couple who's been married for 39 years and 10 months. Uh, Mike and Linda Cardwell have agreed to share their testimony with you, but only given the understanding that they're not sharing everything they've learned after 40 years. But one of the things Mike said in his emails, it's what we're learning after 40 years. So uh, Mike and Linda are going to come up and share their testimony. Like I said, I would only take 15 minutes on the front part of this. Y'all have all the time you want. Have it again. You good? Well, first of all, let me put you at ease. Linda and I aren't going to recap 40 years of marriage, <laughs> year by year, experience by experience. That would be like watching your neighbor's vacation videos, and we're not going to do that. But in all honesty, the stories that we could share 
And Scott asked if Linda and I would take about two hours, and we'll be through shortly after 9.30. But for Linda and I, this is a very humbling experience, for we're not before you as a perfect couple or a perfect marriage. Just ask our kids and they'll reinforce that. But what we are are two sinners saved by grace that have experienced and are experiencing Almighty God's love, mercy, grace, and long-suffering. And all that began in eternity past, long before either one of us knew there was a Mike Cardwell or a Linda Houghton. Our only successes as individuals or as, couple, as a couple is found in our submission to and our reliance on Abba Father. We don't have any other successes other than that. And that's the most important lesson that we have learned and that we are learning. After almost 40 years of marriage, again, as Scott said, we'd like to share just a few lessons that we've partially learned, but mostly that we're still learning. But that's the exciting part, because thankfully, God continues to teach us. And for that, we need to be very thankful. And we've also learned that the only person to seek, the only manual to read, the only place to turn is found in our relationship with God and in his scriptures. So just five lessons that we're learning, certainly not all the lessons we're being taught, but interestingly enough, it does align, Scott, with what you've been teaching uh, in um, Genesis. So, <laughs> so those five lessons, first of all, that marriage is a journey, it is not an event. Secondly, relationally, the very hard work of balancing emotion and will. Third, the importance of commitment to God and to each other. Fourthly, truly understanding the critical need for three-way consistent communication. And then fifth, dealing with and resolving conflict. And there's a, there's a line in a very old gospel song that says, take another trip around Mount Sinai till you learn your lesson well. And I can attest that God has taken us, more me than Linda, around Mount Sinai lots of times until we learned our lesson well. So the first lesson, marriage is a journey. It's not an event that happens on a specific date in a specific place like a wedding ceremony. Up front, marriage, as most of you know, is not an easy journey. It's hard work. Willing to love each other is probably, for me, the hardest part of the entire work because it is a day-to-day -day commitment. It is a step-by-step, -step, every day, willing to do that. You know, there are all kinds of adjectives that describe marriage, wonderful, exciting, pleasurable, fun, rewarding, but there are also some other adjectives like difficult, tiring, exhausting, hard work. But with God as the head, it is work worthwhile. It took me a long time to understand and the concept of fanning the flame. It's so easy to fall into the dailiness and the routine of married life and how easily I forget the importance of continuous courting. As Linda will attest, sometimes I get so wrapped up in work and the responsibilities and the craziness of life that I forget that it's important to do continual dating. Now, let me make it very clear. 
I'm talking about dating your spouse. <laughs> Somehow, fanning the flame gets relegated to the back shelf. You know, the really nice places that you dress up to, dress up for and you go, those are important. But you know, just going to the Sonic and getting a hamburger and a cherry limeade adds amazing things to a relationship. And it's important for a husband to invite his wife for a date, but equally for the wife to invite the husband for a date. But unfortunately, that's one of the things that I have to will to do because it doesn't come automatically. And in building a marriage, many times we forget Psalms 127, 1 and 2. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers, the builders labor in vain. And in vain you rise up early, stay up late, and toil for food. Over the years, I've wasted so much valuable time by getting up early, staying late, and toiling. And I've missed those important times with Linda and the boys. God gives us work, but too often we forget the purpose of that work and we lose our perspective as to what is important and who is important. The second lesson deals with relationally balancing emotion and will. And if I'm honest, I must admit that there are days when the emotion, the affective part, the feeling, the love part is simply not there. And it takes everything within me to will it to be in existence. You know, there's always great uh, disappointment when one mate expects the other mate to meet all of their needs all of the time. God's the only one who can meet all of our needs all the time. And in meeting other, our other's needs, it must be in his way and in his time, not in my desire or my design. Many times we don't have the will, even have the will, because we don't ask for it. But when we do ask for it, sometimes we ask for the wrong reasons, like, Father, could you just make him or her understand how important my needs are? Could you just fix this or that so I can have my way? There's probably not a person in this room that can't recite by heart 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. But how often do we sit down and dissect? How often do we meditate? How often do we examine our lives in light of that, what it really means to love? In that, in that chapter, we know all the if I's, if I do this, and if I do this, and if I do this, and if I do that. But that gains me nothing if I don't have love. But for me, verses 4 through 13 is where I think the real willing comes into play because it says love is patient, and I'm not a very patient person. Love is kind, but I don't always feel like being kind. Love doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking, or it's not easily angered. And it's difficult not for me not to be all of those things particularly if I don't get my way or if my type A personality doesn't, clashes with Linda's type B personality. Love does not keep records of wrong, but I really like to keep records. I like to keep a score, particularly if it helps me make my point. Love rejoices in truth. I don't always rejoice in truth, especially when I'm wrong. Love always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. And while I would like to think I do those things, if I'm really honest, I don't always protect, trust, hope, or persevere as I should. Even though I know that love never fails and that the greatest of faith, 
hope, and love is love, I'm not always lovable, particularly when I don't measure up or when I don't think Linda measures up. It takes my concerted will to do that. Now, I've covered two of those lessons we're learning. Now you get to listen to the better part of our marriage, and Linda's going to cover commitment in and to marriage and then three-way communication. Obviously, marriage is commitment. As I was married at 21 years of age, I did understand that I was entering into a commitment. My parents had lived as an example before me um, of what it is to be lovingly committed to your mate. <clears throat> However, it wasn't until many years later I discovered in Scripture that marriage is actually a covenant. Um, as believers, we enter into covenant as a solemn binding agreement before God that should never be entered into lightly. Our marriage, our marriage commitment should always, um, should actually mirror our commitment to Christ. All through scripture, God re refers to covenant as a solemn promise that will not be broken. There will be times you're going to find that through the months, as the months turn into years, uh, you may be tempted to think that God really doesn't intend for you to stay committed to that person you married. Circumstances change. Family dynamics change, even personalities change. That person may not even seem like the same person you married. Well, Psalm 37.5 begins very simply, but the words are powerful. Commit your ways to the Lord. The most important relationship in our lives is our relationship to Christ. Every day I have to ask God to, to help me deepen my dependence on him and renew my commitment to Mike and to him. I firmly believe the more we seek joy and intimacy with our Savior, the more we'll find that joy and intimacy in our marriages. To be honest, Mike has made it easy for me to be committed to him in our marriage vows. He's led us from the beginning to commit our finances, the teaching and disciplining of our children, just the daily living of our lives in a way that would honor our Lord. He truly has committed himself to try to love me as Christ loved the church. There's a lot of messages out there today that would convince us that we would be happier if we were in a different situation than we find ourselves in. Get out and make yourself happy. That's what's important. These messages contradict God's promises to bring blessing from our commitment. And I can tell you, as I stand here after almost 40 years of marriage, that the commitment is definitely worth it. There's a sense in which God does make you more and more as one. And that's definitely a good thing. Now, the second thing I'm supposed to talk about is communication. Um, Scott asked us to address conflict resolution tonight. And I think the lack of effective communication in marriage is probably at the root of, of most conflict. In our experience, time has always been the greatest enemy of real productive communication with your job, the kids, and all the responsibilities pulling you from all sides. Uh, taking time to sit down and talk takes discipline and a determination to make it a priority. So to try to make this as brief and concise as possible, here are five things we've learned about communication between couples. These are certainly not anything that you haven't heard before. I guess we're just saying that they've worked for us or we're confident they would if we would do them. <laughs> 
Uh, number one, be ye kind one to another. One of the first Bible verses most of us learned, maybe as a child, that remember, words are powerful. They can build up or they can tear down, and they're hard to take back. Use kind words with your spouse. Number two, communication has to be three-way. First, we need to establish a continual active dialogue with our Heavenly Father individually. Then prioritize time to share what's on your hearts with the Father as a couple. There's comfort and security in demonstrating together that you're both dependent on God for the answers to all your issues. Number three, let me state the obvious. Men and women are different. <laughs> women don't tend to communicate in exactly the same way as men. Women tend to be more open, more talkative, more emotional. Men can tend to either yell or clam up. Even the mix of personalities can cause problems in communication. You've probably noticed body language can, can communicate volumes. Don't be too discouraged if you don't feel like you've been able to relate perfectly and in a satisfying way with your mate. As recently as the past year, Mike admitted to me that uh, he didn't know if he would ever figure me out. <laughs> Obviously, God can use those situations when things are not so rosy to keep us alert and always trying to figure each other out. It's all part of the adventure of the journey. I'll just say that if you feel you're coming to an impasse and aren't getting anywhere, there's nothing wrong with calling on a competent, wise Christian counselor to help you see things from perhaps a new perspective and work through some issues. Number four, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In James 1.19, some days I just need Mike to be a good listener, to be compassionate and care what I have to say, and I know he has the same needs. He, of course, uh, if, you, if you disagree with what you hear, try to speak the truth in love. Number five, don't be slow to speak when it comes to expressing your love. Every one of us probably has sent, knows someone that has said that they didn't feel like they, their spouse really loved them anymore. However, if you spoke to that person's mate, they may not, um, they may not have a clue that they feel that way that they've been doing their very best to make them feel loved. <clears throat> As we've gone through times over the years when we have let other things get in the way of, um, of being conscious of expressing our love for each other, we can see how these doubts and fears can creep in. Make it a priority to discover what speaks love to your husband or wife and make it a goal to show them that you love them in that way every day. I haven't read a lot of books on this subject, but I can recommend The Five Love Languages by Dr. Gary Smalley. Get it and read it together. Finding out what your spouse needs from you in order to feel loved can be the key that unlocks a whole new aspect of affirming communication. Finally, as Winston Churchill said, never give up, never give up, never give up. Oh, you just thought we were through. <laughs> Let me quickly talk about that fifth lesson that we continue to learn. And that is, first, the most important, the most critical decision, <clears throat> pardon me, individually and as a couple, is to agree who will be the earthly and heavenly head of the home. All other facets in the marriage fade in, in importance to that once it's answered. If the head of the earthly home doesn't line up with Scripture, 
the journey is going to be more complicated, more frustrating. Once that issue is resolved, there is a certainty in life and in marriage that I know for sure, and that is that trials, testings, and tribulations are going to come. These, in human terms, range from something very small and insignificant to something that is very life-changing in a major time and a major event. And Linda and I, like most of you, have all experienced both those very small times of testing and trials and those major events in life. To, own, to name only a few, like caring for a sick and dying parent, when your only infant granddaughter is being care-flighted to Dallas, when your four-year-old grandson is diagnosed with a very rare tumor, the broken relationships that you can't mend, being in a place you don't know, you don't want to be, regardless of what that place is, and not understanding why you're there, conflicts over finances and disagreeing on how to spend the money and what the budget looks like, and of course, the child-rearing years. But when we understand that the Father in his infinite wisdom designs those trials, those testings, those tribulations to teach us, to perfect us, our perspective changes, or it should. Like you, we found that in those times of trials and testing, that that's the time that we're closest to the Father and he is closest to us. And in retrospect, those are the, mo the sweetest times. Many times my first response or my reaction to those times of testing or trials is how do I fix this? How do I get out of this? How can I make this go away? How long is this thing gonna last? But these are the places and the times that he grows us the most. During those times, the hardest thing to say is, thank you, Father, because those are the times that one more time he shows his example of love to us. When you covenant with God and with your spouse, when the tough, hard times come, leaving is not an option. It's easy to fall to the, for the lies of our culture that sexual gratification is all important, that life is all about the pursuit of money and success, that the individual reigns supreme. Breaking that covenant has severe long-term consequences. One of the things that I know conflict resolution is not is what do I want? what's best for me, but it's in this relationship, what will glorify the Father. Three quick scriptures on conflict resolution. The first is Psalms 103, 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abiding in love. According to scripture, and I think this is the key to conflict resolution, is Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against another. For as the, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Resolve the conflict quickly, because Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 tells us, In your anger do not sin. And one of the things that, that I have a hard time with this particular scripture is don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Resolve the conflict and do not give the devil a foothold. By no means, those are not the only lessons the Father continues to teach Linda and I. And for that, we're grateful. With a grateful heart, we thank God for the good times. 
and we also thank God for the trials. So in a nutshell, here's what we continue to learn after 39 years and 10 months, most of which is twice the age of most of you in this room. <laughs> it comes down to this. It's making choices my way and mess it up are God's ways which are best and always work for our good. With all the ups and all the downs in a marriage, he is always strong and faithful, particularly when I am weak and faithless. Without a doubt, in marriage there are rough, difficult times, but in Christ there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. Our prayer is that individually, as couples, and corporately, you will enjoy the journey knowing who's really in charge and who's in control. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, guys. There, uh, the Cardwell story is not, it's not a, the story of them as individuals. It's not the story of their individual marriage, but their story is the story of a people. And you know that because as they shared, it's not, well, here's, you know, I've learned this, I've learned this, I've learned this. It's God taught me this, and God taught me this, and God taught me that. And one of the sweetest things you can see is in a marriage after 39 years and 10 months, teachability. They're still being taught by God what to do and how to live and how to speak, and you're still learning that. And I appreciate y'all sharing that, and I appreciate y'all not coming up here and just sharing your opinions. I'm thankful that you opened the word, and here's what we've learned. Love is kind. Here's what we've learned. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to hear. I mean, that, that's appropriate. That's an appropriate response, and seeing that teachability is, is huge. So some, a couple of things they talked about, which are things we're going to be... Uh, Thank the Lord we're going to be looking at in the, in the next two weeks is a covenant people in times of trial. I mean, that's kind of where these two weeks are, these next two weeks are going to go. What it means to be a covenant people in covenant, what it means that your marriage is covenant, and what trial does. One of the, the quote I wanted to share with is I'm thinking about 30 near, 39 years and 10 months of sanctification, 39 years and 10 months of training, redemption, ups, downs, mountains, valleys. Um, I'm thinking about that, and, and this quote came, came to mind from a book I read is that the will, we're talking about the will to love. The will is that faculty which can only be tested when pain is, is as much a part of its choice as pleasure is. The will is that faculty which can only be tested when pain is as much a part of its choice as that faculty, is, as, as pleasure is. So you're going to go on a run, and I will to finish the fifth mile, but on mile four, you got a, you got a hamstring cramp, and you're hurting, and there's pain, and you can make a choice, I'm done or not, or you keep going. And so we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks, how when the will is tested, there's, there's a measure of pain there, and you got to choose to go through that. But that's the only way you can actually test it. Like when you take a math test in school, they're seeing where are you at? Where, what are the capabilities here? How can you respond to the questions being asked? And we're going to talk about what it means to be a covenant people. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll hang around for a couple minutes if anyone wants to talk or has any questions. The Cardwells will hang around. They didn't say they would, but they will. I know they will. So uh, let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. I thank you uh, for the privilege of hearing a testimony of uh, two lives that you have made one and that you have spoken into and that you have, by the work of your Spirit, uh, continue, that you continue to do great things by the work of your Spirit as that uh, teachability remains and as your word continues to teach us no matter how much we, we've learned. God, I'm thankful uh, for your design. I'm thankful for the order that you put in place and I'm thankful that we don't have to wing it. I'm thankful that we don't have to listen to a testimony tonight of two people who just figured it out as they went along, but two people that submit to the word 
and that know that there's a will that's above theirs and a design and order that's above theirs and they submit to it. I pray, Lord, that they would continue to do that. I pray that it would be a reminder to us to do the same thing. God, you're so good to us. Your provision is so very abundant. And the life we have in Christ is sweeter than anything we can imagine. We thank you for Jesus and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.